Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dear Katie, where survivors of sexual assault, rape, and abuse share their stories from hurt to healing. I'm your host, Katie Kessner. When I was age 18, I appeared on the cover of Time Magazine to speak out nationally and really internationally as a victim of acquaintance rape. And since then, I've dedicated my entire life, my career, all of my energy to helping survivors and really raising awareness around sexual assault, ultimately to end sexual violence in all forms. In this episode of Dear Katie, I am joined by Claire Kaplan, and we are lucky enough to have an expert episode with Aisha Shahida Simmons. If you've been lucky enough to see the groundbreaking film, Know the Rape Documentary, or read the book, Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Child Sexual Abuse, then you know the world-class changemaker Aisha Shahida Simmons. She is a path-breaking cultural worker inviting diasporic Black people to join her in transformative storytelling to envision a world which ends child sexual abuse without relying on the criminal justice system. You will hear our discussion is so rich that we couldn't even finish. So perhaps think of this as part one of an amazing conversation. And if you want part two, just let us know. Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. And before we get started, I want to remind our listeners we engage in conversations about topics that can be difficult to hear and triggering for some. So again, just think about reaching out to someone if you need it or a resource if you need to. And at the end of the podcast, we'll give you the um, address of our website that will give you resources. Thanks so much, Claire. And today we are so excited and thrilled to have with us Aisha Shahida Simmons. Um, Aisha, you have done so much uh, with your all different spaces and places, your voice and your powerful vision for kind of a, a new way to think about so many important topics to our themes of sexual violence prevention and survivor support. So if you don't mind, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your own background and your own words. Sure. Well, first, let me just say thank you, Katie and Claire, for inviting me to be a guest on this podcast. It is really um, <clears throat> a gift um, to be able to talk about these issues, which are so near and dear to me personally and creatively and politically. Um, I am a survivor of childhood sexual violence and adult sexual violence. I have been working in the fields of disrupting ending and healing from forms of sexual violence since 1994, when I started working on my film, uh, Know the Rape Documentary, which was uh, released in 2006. And um, to, um, and so then, so there, there was no, and then I, several, many years later, I edited an anthology titled Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Childhood Sexual Abuse. That came out in 2019. It received and won the 2020 Lambda Literary Award. Um, no uh, was is Ford Foundation funded, and it received a lot of awards um, it, um, for Best Documentary at the Indian Women's International Film Festival, the San Diego Women's International Film Festival. I'm presently um, a Soros Media Fellow, completing my trilogy of cultural work um, that uses sexual storytelling as a praxis to heal from, disrupt, 
and end sexual violence without relying on the carceral state. So this project, the first two projects really is a, um, I was collecting and documenting the stories of approximately somewhere between 70 and 80 diasporic black survivors of childhood sexual abuse and adult sexual violence. And then this project, um, I'm going to go in and really talk about um, my story and journey um, also as a roadmap. So that's, that's a lot of my work. I think I want to say that I would not be here were it not for many, 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 many years of therapy beginning in 1992. Um, so continuously, um, I've been engaged in therapy and believe in therapy. And then also for me, my contemplative practice, spiritual practice of, of Buddhist meditation, um, that that has all th- those two, um, as well as um, working in communities who are ending, working to end sexual violence. Those are, those are my grounding anchors to doing this work. Oh my goodness. That is amazing journey. And I know Claire and I have tons of questions and I'm thinking about our listeners and already you've given us so much to think about and consider and, and, and your journey alone and your perseverance and your leaning in on therapy and your Buddhist meditation and practice, I think is really important to, to think about sustainability for our survivors. Um, my first thought is in 1994, I, I, I know the year well, <laughs> I was just finishing college finally and had, you know, shared my own story nationally and publicly in 1990, 91. So I think about where you were in 94 historically and where I was, and it was a very white, closed-minded world. <laughs> so could you maybe start our listeners out with what does it mean to struggle and fight for so many years? And how did you even start that, start that process? Yeah, it was, it was a really hard, it it was a difficult time. And I think it's really important um, in terms of thinking about context. So first of all, I feel like my work would not exist exist without the work of so many before me, you know, thinking about, for instance, and a lot of people don't necessarily know this, of, of civil rights activists such as Rosa Parks, that the, the framework for the famous Montgomery bus boycott, that what came, what was, what's the foundation of that was anti-rape work that Rosa Parks was doing um, in response to sexual violence that was happening in apartheid uh, uh, the South in this U- in the U.S. And then and, and, and so many others, the Combahee River Collective, Loretta Ross at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center and Kenji Ture at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And I just share that because I think so often in this contemporary moment, we hear, we see stories or we see movements and we don't understand that all the seismic and there's still a lot more change that needs to happen that has happened is a, is a result of all these seeds being planted along the way. So when I started making no in 1994, I was 25. I was a, I was a survivor of, um, of childhood sexual abuse, but I wasn't even dealing with that at all. I was raped my sophomore year in college. I dropped out of school, um, after, after my, um, assault and I, I became pregnant and I was able to have a safe and legal abortion. So it was a very traumatic time period for me. Um, and when I started, and that was 89. So five years later, 
in two years after doing ther- therapy, beginning my therapy journey, I started working on no. And I didn't think it had anything to do with me at all. Like for me, I was like making this film to break silences in Black communities around sexual violence, just following up from what you were saying, Katie, precisely because it was such a a white dominated conversation around sexual violence. And then the history of lynching of Black men for being accused of raping white women, that it it created a, a loud silence in Black communities around talking about sexual violence. And I, you know, see this in terms of the work of like Alice Walker and the color purple or Intozaki Shange in her famous play for Colored Girls. So for me, I saw this kind of insular work, like we have to break the silence um, because if racism ended right now or right now being in 94, let alone 2021, we're still not safe from sexual violence. So it was really hard. I And I'm out lesbian. I didn't get funding right away. I mean, it was it was it was a serious uphill battle and um i want to say though the the flip side of that is just the power of community the power of um the anti-violence movement specifically uh women of color who really um played pivotal roles in in helping uh the this film get made the Estrella foundation lesbian foundation for justice was the first first institutional funder to give money um towards the making of no i would screen works and progresses works in progress of the film across this country at colleges and uh, and universities. And then also internationally, that there was a big international um, movement in France, in England, the Netherlands, where, and, and this was multiracial, where uh, folks were helping, organizing screenings and fundraising screenings to talk about the issue of sexual violence as and and using those screenings as fundraising opportunities that then I would put back into the film. Um, I know Claire is going to have a question, but Aisha, I want to go back to one more point to, because our listeners, you know, we are older women, <laughs> and <laughs> I also want to just go back to one more starting point for your journey and fight, and that while you you know talked about Rosa Parks and all these other who have come before us. One of the most fabulous books I read in my feminist theory class was this bridge called my back. Mm, Um, It was, it was so powerful and so eye opening for me, but all we had back then were books. Like we could be, there was like, there was a TV, (laughs) there was a TV, but, but in order to, to, you know, we were pounding literally the pavement. We didn't have social media. We right. we had the wires of the press. If if you if they thought if the the gods of the the press thought you were worthy of picking up a story, but that was it's things are so different. And I think that starting point for how steep your climb was, Aisha. To me, a lot of people don't realize that because there the accessibility of leadership voices women's voices, women of color, women, non-heterosexual, like those were, you know, like diamonds. We, we had so diamonds every so often, hard to find. And so a lot of what I hear you saying is you had to envision something alone. 
No, thank you. And, and and because one of the things that I always tell people is like, I was making a film. There was no Kickstarter, no, no. Indiegogo, no GoFundMe. <laughs> right. right. None That's of that. Right. There was yeah. none of, no social media. It was no. like mailing mm-hmm. postcards, going to conferences, handing out brochures. It was foot to pavement. I so remember when, Aisha, when you were raising money for this film, because periodically I would receive appeals and I don't even know what format they were in, but people would talk about it. People would send notes out. You were probably writing postcards like crazy, whatever it was. And I just remember it took years for you to get all the funding together for that. Yeah, it was 12 years, 12 years, seven of which were full time and many single digit checking account days and all of that. And for me, it was very much, it was, it was a serious fem- black feminist led project. So my whole crew, the, uh, in terms of the production crew, were all um, black women. Um, and um, the editor is a, a, a white woman. Um, and um, the composer is, a, is a, a Haitian American man. But it was very much for me, I wanted the front to match the back. And I really believed in paying everyone their rates. So that was the other thing that made it very kind of radical that I didn't ask folks to donate labor. That was really important to me. So that's why it took so long. I'm glad you shared that, Aisha. That part of the the uphill battle is such an inspiration because you persevered for years and years and years. So thank you for not giving up and all that you just said. And you know that the film is so profound. I mean, I still remember parts of it and I saw it years and years ago um uh particularly Marlon Marlon Riggs I mean that piece is just you know amazing Mm. but um when the film was completed what did that feel like well you know it took so long to make the film it took 12 years seven of which were full-time um you know and I I think I had not I think, I know I expected no to be well-received. And when I say well-received, it was well-received, but I mean well-received in terms of mainstream. And and uh, doors were closed. I, it didn't have the big premiere, quote-unquote, uh, festival premiere. Like, you know, I, I mean, I, I, there were many festivals that I wanted it to premiere at. There were, in terms of broadcast entities, no one wanted to touch it. And I think it's, it's because the film centers black women survivors and it, it not only centers it. it, So I, you know, I show their victimization, but then I also show their agency, their healing process. I, I look at the film from enslavement through present day, present day at that time was the early two thousands really. And it's really a celebration of resilience and a call for accountability. And I think that at the time that it came out, it, it was not, it was not where we are now. Like when we think about like incredible uh, series such as Surviving R. Kelly, like that, it just, that's not where we were in 2006. Now with that shared, I am grateful and elated that the film had its world premiere at the Los Angeles Pan-African Film Festival, which in hindsight, right, I think it was a perfect place because it was like, this film is a call to action in Black communities around like, how do we address this 
in the, you know, within the height of white supremacist violence that we cannot pick and choose. We have to do both and. So, and then it was, and then, and also had great international reception um, because of a lot of the grassroots work that I had done raising the film, that there was already built in audiences and colleges and universities were using it. And here we are in 2021 and it is still being used. It's still being taught. It's still still, relevant. It's still relevant, which is on the one hand, it's very tragic that it's still relevant in the context (laughs) of, you know, disrupting rape culture. And it's also very powerful in the context of this body of work still being used as, as a resource, not only here, but also globally. But let's talk about um, disrupting the rape culture, Aisha, because, you know, everyone I, every activist I meet has a different strategy, right? I think that I believe in the power of storytelling. Like, I think that storytelling is very powerful. It, because it, it gives agency to those who've been impacted by the violence. And so I, I feel like the storytelling is what breaks, it, it plays a powerful role in breaking the silence. It, it plays a powerful role in affirming um, survivors' realities. Um, and so that, that for me is, I'm a storyteller. I believe in, 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 in telling stories. And it is, and I believe, and I know that stories change transform the world. Um, and we, we see, that's why I started as, as a filmmaker and I'm a writer in terms of the power of storytelling. Because when people have a connection, that I believe it is, it is through that connection that people are moved. Um, I also am strong, and I've been since for a very long time, which is as evidence in my film, No, and in my anthology, um, really how do we disrupt and end these inhumane um, forms of violence? How do we do it humanely? How do we um, center the most immediate survivors, make sure that they are safe, um, that we are safe speaking as a survivor, but without throwing away the harm doors? And I want to be clear that that doesn't mean not holding them accountable. But what we know is that most people who commit sexual harm are not held accountable in terms of a criminal justice system. We also know that prison doesn't stop rape and that rape happens in prison, not only at the hands of other inmates, but at correctional officers, at correctional personnel. And so my my desires, what is my interest is, what is it going to take to co-create a world without violence? What what is that work that we are able to do um, in terms of tackling um, this pandemic. And I, and I don't think that we will be able to do it if we only focus on like, oh, we'll just lock them up and throw away the keys. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I would love to focus on that a little bit because um, the anti-violence movement in, in general is, is clearly moving in that direction to talk about um, the failure of the criminal justice system, not only to stop the violence, but also to address the the problem at its root, and that are we throwing away people who shouldn't be thrown away? And that, and, and is there another approach, um, especially since the uh, burden of incarceration has largely fallen on uh, minoritized communities, and particularly black and brown men? Um, and how can we 
how can we end one oppression by creating another oppression, basically? So the, it's it's fascinating to me. And I, I love hearing the ideas that people have and, and the conversation about um, uh, trying to find new ways to address this. I'm curious if you could talk about in the book, um, Love with Accountability, um, what sorts of ideas emerged um, from that? Yeah, so um, Love with Accountability is an anthology of writings by 40 diasporic um, Black survivors of childhood sexual abuse um, and and some advocates and one bystander who was my mother. Um, they are um, from the African-American, African-Caribbean, Latinx, Indigenous, and from the continent of Africa. And um, and what I did was I invited these contributors to each write and, and invited them to share their testimonies if they felt moved, but also to write about, to envision a world without violence. So how, how can we disrupt it? So I didn't want to just end on the trauma, but in just in terms of how, how do we disrupt it? And, you know, the responses are, are quite incredible. And, and there's a lot of trauma in the book in terms of the stories, the power, the cu- courage of, of, of these contributors, because everybody's using their names, there's no pseudonyms, and they're sharing their, their stories. Um, and, and, you know, some, some folks are really, uh, they talk about, um, you know, the questions that we need to ask harm doers, you know, um, not why did you rape, but what would have prevented you from raping, for instance? Um, what, what, what does it mean um, to, if you are a lifeguard in a, um, you know, at, in, a, in a, a pool swimming, you know, you teach people how to swim. You don't teach them like, don't drown. You, te- you prepare them. This is something that Ignacia Hutia Rivera, um, Shaiti Rivera writes about in their um, contribution. And so that, and their perspective is that in order to do uh, rape prevention, in order to do uh, child sexual, um, prevents child sexual abuse, is that we have to do comprehensive sex education from the cradle to the grave. Um, Loretta Ross really talks about, you know, the, the, the work of how, you know, confront, you know, confronting loved ones in our families. My mom talks about, and she's a survivor who's featured in No, my film No, and she did not protect me as a child. And she talks about, you know, A, she, she writes about not protecting me. And I think that so often that this is what many of us survivors, not necessarily that they want their parents or, you know, caretakers to write about not protecting them, but to own up to it, to be, take accountability, be responsible for the harm that they cause. That, you know, um, so I think that for me, the, the, the whole, the, the, the chorus of voices is really, um, they invite us to think outside of the box. Um, and some, let me be very clear that there's some contributors who are like, we need to think outside of the box. And while we do that, we also need to use what systems we have. So, and that was important to me. I, I identify as a, as somebody who continuously strives to embody abolitionist principles. Um, it is, it's a lot easier said than done, but it is my constant commitment. Um, and simultaneously, I'm interested in having conversations 
or creating a space where we have conversations with people who think very differently, because it's not just about speaking only to the choir. It's really about speaking for all of us to come across our differences, yet knowing that we most of us share a goal of ending the violence. And so what is it going to take? And in order to do that, we have to be willing to have these difficult conversations. I would tell my story and I would know I was sitting in the fire with the lions at, at the you know, at my feet and they would throw all of their hate and, and anger and blame right at me every night. What I like about what you just said is you're saying something similar, which is as, as, as weak and vulnerable as we often feel as survivors, there's something powerful about being able to take it and listen to the anger and not let it eat us up. And I don't know if that's, you know, what you think, but I'm fearful that if we don't find the fire, we're not going to make the change we want. I I completely agree. And it's not easy. And let me just, I actually want to back up a little bit. And because I said, I, I want, because when you're talking about how, you know, the hate or the, you know, the vitriol and the judgment um, that can come out when we're, when we're talking about the harm that we've experienced or, or even like talking with people who've been harmed to just be like, yeah, I don't believe in, in prison as the answer. And yet, let me be very clear. i this is how I feel, and I'm, I'm along with many others. And I also understand that there are many survivors who don't. And so I, I'm, I'm very, I walk gingerly. Like my, my, my goal is never to tell someone what to do, how in terms of how they should respond to the violence. Um, it's, I think, the problem is, is that for so many of us, we don't have other options. So of course, the thing is, you call the police, and hopefully they get locked up. And I mean, that's the goal, right? That's, that's what we're taught. But when a lot of times people really want accountability, they want insurance that this person will not do it again. And and the the image that is presented is prisons. And I think that there are other ways that um, and other other there are other ways that can happen um, in terms of um, working towards preventing folks from committing harm again. And and equally as important, which is why I brought up my mother as a bystander, is that we have to. We can't just focus on the the person who commits the harm. There's so many people who allow it to happen, which is something that I think about in terms of these high profile cases like R. Kelly or Harvey Weinstein. Or when I was making no, I was in the height of the O.J. Simpson trial of the Mike of Mike Tyson and the Clarence Thomas hearings. Like all of this was is kind of backdrop in many ways. And and there's so many folks who allow this stuff to happen that we can kind of hone in on the one person. But if we don't deal with the kind of the systems in place that allow the harm to continue, we won't get to the root of it. So um, so in response to what you're saying, Katie, I do think that it is critical to, to sit in the fire. And it's hard. And a lot of times it doesn't feel fair. Um, I know for me, for the longest, I used to just say I was raped my so- in my sophomore year in college. And I got pregnant and from the rape and um, had had a safe and legal abortion. I, I used to, that used to be the narrative. And the truth of the matter is that I was raped. And then this, the following night, I had consensual sex with another person, another man. And so I don't know in terms of the pregnancy, right? But I didn't. I used to be afraid 
me to talk about it for that judgment. Like people would blame me, right? Um, and those are those difficult conversations that um, I understand that many cannot have. I can, and I feel a responsibility to put it out there to to deal with perhaps the onslaught of calling me, you know, derogatory terms or critiquing my judgment and all of that. And my response is always like, yeah, it was poor judgment. But is that the penalty? Is that what we're saying, that the penalty for poor judgment is sexual violence? Right. And oh, that's was was my mantra when I worked in higher education is, well, she got drunk or she did this thing or she was partying or whatever. I said, yeah, but should rape be a, the punishment for getting drunk or should rape be the punishment for having poor judgment, which is exactly the phrase. And so thank you for saying that. Um it's almost like it's a, it's a punishment, a form of punishment for women who stray outside the expected lines of behavior, right? And and uh, but we know, of course, that w- many women are not straying and they still get raped, and and also that um, somehow the the um, burden of responsibility lands on the wrong person. And I think you know, when you're talking about. Um, there are people who still believe in in the criminal justice system uh, for p- punishing rapists or punishing child abusers. Yes, but I think it's also uh, for some it's it's more an issue of I won't feel safe unless that person's locked up, right? So there's that personal issue of not just I don't want them doing it to other people or other children, but I want to feel safe too. And there's that illusion, and yeah, it is. There's a real piece of that safety, but at the same time. It's also an illusion. And 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 how do we, for survivors who are already feeling vulnerable and to think that that it's an illusion is really a hard thing to hear. Yeah, and I think that that's what, I think that that's the carceral response because we want to feel safe. We want, you know, I think, and so there's this illusion of, okay, if, if they're just in jail, we're going to be okay, you know? And I think that so often, particularly when we're talking about childhood sexual abuse, um, you know, it gets very complex and complicated in terms of family. Like for me, it was my grandfather. I I didn't want him going to jail or, you know, that wasn't even a, an option. But it's like, you know, and then I also think in, and then in communities of color that that also plays a role, right? Because in particularly if we think about, you know, I mean, all every time we look up, we're hearing some report around um uh, uh, violence committed, state sanctioned violence committed against our community. So then who, you're not going to call the police. So, but yet we have to hold people accountable in our communities. We have to, you know, um, and not condone and not excuse. Um, and this is that, this is the hard work. How did you find reconciliation? And if, if so, I, it sounds like there's some, and how did you get there? And, you know, especially with your mom. My parents are um, human rights activists. They met in the civil rights movement um, and, uh, and, and have been engaged. They're still alive um, in global human rights work for, they're in their 70s. So like for like over, I'm 52. So over 50 years um, uh, in terms of my father doing work on trafficking, my mother doing uh, work on women's rights under Islamic law and in, in terms of racial justice in this country and, and then globally, my 
living abroad. My father up until COVID was living in Budapest, Hungary. So I, I share that. I just, and I think it's really important because there's so often we hear these narratives or myths around like, oh, well, my parents didn't know, or they weren't, they weren't exposed to things. My parents did know. My mother's a survivor and, and actually instituted a first, a, a sexual harassment policy in 1964 during the Mississippi Freedom Summer. So, and yet, she didn't protect me. Um, I didn't realize all of this. I mean, I, I was more focused on the harm that my grandfather caused, my paternal grandfather. And I said that she didn't protect me. My father also didn't protect me. My parents are divorced. And so it wasn't until 2015, yeah, 2015, when I was 46. And I we talked about no coming out in 2006. And I think that's so important to just name because I think so, so often as activists, as you know, folks who are public survivors, that just to say that this is an ongoing journey. Like I don't just arrive, I'm constantly evolving. And so I wasn't able to even begin to do the, the excavation around my childhood sexual abuse. And I really, I understood my parents' bystanding roles because I told my parents what happened. And they initially didn't want to deal with it at all. Like they just, and I was, I thought I was going to lose it, like lose it literally, because I, I couldn't believe that they weren't dealing with it. And I, you know, thank goodness for therapy and my con contemplative practice. And the words that just literally emerged were love with accountability. Because I realized that, you know, um, this kind of notion of, oh, my parents love me. Yes, I believe that. I know that. But I could not just accept that without accountability. So that that and that came out of my meditative practice. And that's what I started demanding from both of them. Um, and it took a while for us to get there. Uh, my mother first and um, and and when she knew I was first doing the Love with Accountability Forum on the feministwire.com and online publication and that then transformed to the anthology, she asked if she could uh, participate um, in in, in the anthology to write about not protecting me. Um, and particularly from the perspective of not uh, clearly as my mother, but as a civil rights and women's rights and human rights activist. Um, and so I think that I feel really fortunate because I know for many people will never ever get that in their lifetime. And which is why I always say that our healing cannot be contingent upon someone else getting it. Yes, I feel really fortunate and we're still struggling. It's not an easy thing. There's, you know, I, I mean, in four, like I said, 2015, I was 46. My abuse happened when I was 10, from 10 to 12. So it's a long time. Um, but I am grateful that my mother has not only taken the work to do the work with me behind the scenes, but also to publicly talk about it. And my father has not, he's not talked about it publicly, but we've also done work around, um, uh, around the healing. And I think what's, what's, I think powerful, uh, for, in terms of the anthology, Love with Accountability, the anthology is to, to have not only my mother's writings, but the, the writings of of survivors talking about you know i mean all harm is 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 invasion sexual harm is invasion and violation and then there's just there's a whole nother level that happens when you're a child when it's someone that you chances are you love that you know that's trusted and so for folks to really write about this and across the gender spectrum not just cisgender women and men but also trans and gender non-binary people writing um, about it and deaf contributors writing about 
um, the, the harm that we experience in our families and how we heal from it and how do we address it? What is the work that we can do to end this? What does love with accountability look like? Beautifully said, Aisha, beautifully said. And such a call. And I, I honor that you have, you know, found a way to to keep going with the, the healing process with your mom and dad. The only other question I have for you, Aisha, is what's next? I mean, you've you're only fifty two. <laughs> that was my well, this is my yeah, question as only well. Only fifty two. What's what's happening now and what what are you working on now? Yeah, well I am I'm writing and writing a book uh, tentatively titled Love and Justice. And, um, and so, and it's really, it's, it's, it's looking at sexual violence um, and accountability um, and first person, first person. So, you know, as I said, the, the er- earlier two works is a, 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 you know, a collage of 80 voices um, for the, the documentary No, as well as the anthology combined. Um, and, and now this is, I'm, I'm, I'm going in, right? Like, I think that I'm finally at a place where I can do that work. So that's, that's a, a big project that I'm working on. And um, I will also um, be uh, launching next year a podcast, uh, Love with Accountability, looking at these, um, these specific issues that I've been talking about, really giving voice to the contributors in the anthology, but beyond that, because I think that, you know, love and accountability specifically as it relates to sexual violence, but I see it in so many other components that we need in this, you know, we need love and we need accountability. I just, I firmly believe that, but that, but the big project is, is the, is, is the book project, Love and Justice. Well, I look forward to reading it and um, all the best in that project because I know how hard it is to write a book. Um, And uh, I want to thank you for joining us. This is an amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I concur. And Aisha, you know, we support you and I hope our listeners will, you know, pick up, pick up a book, pick up another book, get a dollar. I saw we can even get the documentary for a dollar off your site. I, I was so you know, that's so accessible. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, I did that because of COVID. Everyone should see it. Yeah, it's a dollar rental. Well, this um, has been such a joy to have you and so so much you offer and and keep going. And I I know it's going to be important for so many others to hear your voice in so many different places and spaces. So thank you for spending some time with us. So thank you again, Aisha, for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? Really just want to encourage all survivors to take care, to remember that healing is a journey and never a destination. And for all those who love and support survivors um, to, you know, to be present and, 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 and be there for the survivors and also be there for the harm doers, hold them accountable, hold them accountable with love, but, and hold them accountable. Let's not condone violence. Let's disrupt and end it. Thanks, Aisha. So this has been a Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. And as a reminder, if you visit takebackthenight.org, you'll find um, access to resources if you need them, if you're a survivor or someone who loves a survivor. And uh, as we always do, we're going to close with our Shatter the Silence and together we will end the violence. Uh, Please tune in to our next episode and we look forward to having you all join us again. So long, everyone.
We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners. And thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.